No, I could hear the noise. Yeah. I don't think it... I think it's just coming through the way that we've got this set up and it's not audible. Can you guys hear a noise in the background? You got a lot of background noise? No. No, that's not it. No, this is a constant thing. That's your butt, Murph. I didn't, I didn't realise you could hear me doing that. <laughs> we can hear everything. Oh, God, shit, we're live. We're live. Are we live? Yeah. We're live. We're live. Here we are. All right, there's enough butt jokes then. Yeah, no more butt jokes. We've got nine nine people on board already. Instantly. That's a record. Happy days. Well, their mothers might be waiting till 10 o'clock. Apparently, it was advertised as 10 o'clock. Sorry. Um, This is as good as it gets, really, isn't it? It is. All right, so here we go. Welcome to another episode of Knife Making... Down Under Podcast, Upcast. Um, we're coming to you live. Corin and I are like, look at this, social distancing. Oh. <laughs> Corin's act. we're actually at Kev's Forge. We're down at my place. Corin's on his way down to Cooma, catch up with Yui from 84 Engineering. Yeah, now some of the restrictions have been lifted. And we've got Mert who's our usual contender on with us as well, Murph from the Hunter Valley. And we have our very special guest with us who we've been chatting to for a little while already. We've got Steve Schwartzer, all the way from North Florida. Yeah, hanging out. That's in America. That's that's in America. Yeah. <laughs> it is? <laughs> America. You've got to floor the men on, on, on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> they say, what do you what do you do in Florida? I said, we build things and form our own government. That's what we do. <laughs> well, there we go. So, yeah, so Steve, thank you for joining us tonight uh, and being our special guest. Um, I think you'll agree at the end of this that we're the special ones. Yeah. But not in a good way. <laughs> we're um, special and you're our, we're special and you're our guest. <laughs> Uh, I think I owe the listeners an apology. I got drunk last time and just decided to end the podcast. Yes, that was me. Um, yeah, it's not a coincidence that Corin is at my house. He was reprimanded and told to front up, and I would take care of his behaviour in person, based off last week where I I didn't show up myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, cracking. Cracking. So thanks for joining us. So, Steve, yeah. I imagine there's a few people listening who may not know who you are, though that's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom, but let's educate them. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself in a nutshell. We can ask some questions, but yeah. do you want to do it that way? Yeah, We can sure. ask some questions. All right. Well, good. All right. Let me ask you this. How many of these people know him? They all know Henning, but Most that's because he them. crashes the podcast every <laughs> yeah. week. We're kind of yeah. Henning's. Well, Henning's. I, 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 I taught Henning everything he knows. So there you go. <laughs> ah, right. So yeah. you're the man responsible. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No, I've been doing this for fifty years now, and I, I really enjoy it. And uh, at at this twilight end of what I do. Is uh, it's especially rewarding because I've started teaching a lot more and a lot of little soul techniques and stuff that I use and and the way I do it, not a, a wrong way or right way, but the way I do things. 
uh, it seems to help people, and you can push people way ahead by teaching. And uh, I enjoy it. That's that's everybody. I think I went to South Africa to teach, but I went to South Africa to learn. Uh, one of the things about hitting, he fits knives together in a very unusual way, and he is good at it. Uh, you look at uh, his keyhole stuff and all that. That's what I, I wanted to learn now. I, I came over to learn. And uh, anywhere I go, every day I learn something new. Have you looked in and the I, mirror, mate? You're too old to learn. No. No. I, I am? <laughs> Let me look. <laughs> yeah, stop breaking the rules. Yeah, <laughs> I got this half sheep on my face. And uh, because it's my COVID mask, I just pulled it off. My buddy Jamie, I saw that thing with his, all that hair tucked in his oh, face. Yeah. I thought, I got to do that. You know? So anyway, that, uh, we hadn't been out of the house here in, in a few weeks. And so I just kind of let everything go. And then I got uh, uh Actually, it was a physical notice for my wife to clean up, and I thought, "Well, I guess I better." Anyway, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not you're not alone. You're not alone on that, mate. I used to have a pretty big yeah. beard, and my wife just thought it was disgusting. She hated it. I loved it, and now I've got like a mild five o'clock shadow, and I'm already getting the dirty looks. Go and clean up. Go and have a shave. I'm growing a fro, and, and Corin's growing a fro. <laughs> Oh, hey, yeah. there's all three of them. There's all three of my fro right there. Can you see them? Let me get up close. <laughs> nice one. You're a little bit ahead of Murr. So, Steve. Yeah, well. <laughs> let's go back into, into the deep, dark past of Steve, mate. So, tell me, mate, when did you get your first knife? How old were you? And uh, what knife was it? Yeah, okay. Well, then... Uh, I did my first forging when I was in the seventh grade. No, I was probably no. When did you get thirteen? When did you get your own first knife? Not when you made one. When did you get one? Oh, my own first knife. I was probably five years old, five or six. And then when I got uh, like an eight, nine year old, I used to buy the knives out of the comics. I still have some of the damn things. Or they had the cast handles with a, a skull on the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the stuff. yeah. And they were 25 cents. Wow. <laughs> anyway, I've, I've got a couple of those things left, and I got them in my shop. Beauty. But I, 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 I see one of those old things in a junk shop somewhere. It's a, i got to have it. Uh, I, I was always fascinated with sharp things and blowing up stuff and shooting stuff, so that kind of went all together. My dad trained me to use a rifle when I was probably six or seven years old. And uh, so I, knives are part of our culture in the South, especially. So everybody had a pocket knife. I, I, I went to, we had like soap carving in the South grade. Everybody had to bring a pocket knife to school. I was the only one that got mine confiscated because it was one of those Italian stilettos. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, <laughs> you could flick the thing out and a teacher could. <laughs> think about the timeline where you can, you asked to bring a knife to school. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and we took guns to school. I mean, we 
really took guns to school once we were driving. We had guns in the car. It must have been. Always had guns in the car. Must have been great yeah. growing up in the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to go now. That was very <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I'll reprimand him later. <laughs> <laughs> no, it actually was wonderful. It, uh, there was no restriction, but and we didn't realize how fast our our abilities to take care of ourselves would be eroded. And that was uh, you look back on it in today's age, and you're going, everything has got to be so politically correct. You 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 you're more terrified of hurting somebody's feelings than you are of shooting them. Yeah. So uh, it kind of goes hand in hand. But it, uh, we used to get horseback. I had uh, scabbards for my rifles and pistols on my belt. We'd get on a horse and ride for 20 miles, 30 miles, hunting rabbits and stuff. It was wonderful. Whereabouts was this now, in the south? Whereabouts were you? I was, I was in Texas at the time in Fort Worth, Dallas area. Oh, yeah. And uh, we were in a little city called Pantigo. It was a little incorporated city that was in the middle of that metroplex. Now that's all concrete. It's uh, houses and concrete, and uh, it's butted up. It's like any very dense urban area now. It used to be all farmland, all cattle ranches and stuff, and now it's all all covered up in concrete. Yeah, yeah, it would have yeah. changed a bit. Yeah, all the so, places where I grew uh, up in Rome, it's all houses and houses oh, and yeah, estates. That's now. it. Where I'm living now, where I'm living now, yeah. was paddocks in the middle of nowhere, like just grassland, no, in the middle of nowhere. And now we're one of the last suburb areas, suburban areas, before you head off to, through to the mountains. Oh, that's cool. I, I can't be. We're in, we're in the very rural here where I live now. There's a lot of water. There's hundreds of lakes in this area. If you fly over this. It, it looks like a series of large ponds. And uh, I actually live on about a 400-acre lake. My house backs up to it. And we got alligators in the yard from time to time and that sort of thing. But it's we love it. Deer come in and eat your bushes. That pisses you off. And occasionally, one of, one of those deer will fall into the freezer and uh, <laughs> gets, gets, gets consumed. <laughs> Well, then you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> if you if you feed them, you ought to be able to harvest for them. That's only fair. Yeah. So oh, you were saying you were saying, Steve, you were saying that you made your first knife. When when was that? When you were like twelve years old or something? Yeah, I was about twelve or thirteen. I was in the seventh grade, and uh, I love school. Uh, I would go to school and I'd find grades I liked and I'd just stay in them sometimes a couple of years <laughs> but now nah, I forged a chisel they had, actually had a shop where you forged and uh, you had a wood shop you could make things and you had a forge shop you could forge things and learn to machine by hand and that sort of thing and I did that and then that went away uh you know, as I as I went into high school, all that, all that stuff got shoved to the side. And then in the '60s, late '60s, I worked in, uh, for uh, uh, a company called LTV Aerospace because that's where my dad worked. And I, I worked on the first uh, those big Saturn rockets, forging those big domes. 
Uh, we can actually hand forge those under a Yoder powder hammer, power hammer. Me and the old man that knew what he was doing, I was on the other end of the sheet being yelled at because I wasn't keeping up. But anyway, <laughs> we did that. <laughs> and we built the first 747 jet vertical stabilizer. I was involved in that project. And then we had a lot of stainless steel in there that they used in aircraft. And I didn't know anything about heat treating or that sort of thing. So we ground out some knives out of it. And I call those my knife-shaped objects of the 60s because they weren't real knives because they weren't heat treated properly. But they look like knives. And, uh, and of course, typically crude, we use whatever phenolic we could find in the shop and aluminum rivets and that sort of thing. And very typically crude. It looked like a homemade knife. Let's say kind of like kids. And, uh, <laughs> Sounds like a bit. Yeah, oh, yeah. I hope to get to that. Like, I hope to get to that quality kind of like, in a few years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of it's kind of like Henning's work. It's a little rough, well, but look, you know. I look to Henning for inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I think Steve, it looks sounds like a very modern. You said you're using like phenolic stuff, like acrylic and with aluminum rivets and rough. It looks yeah. like an average knife, average knife of nowadays. Only yeah. thing that's missing is your 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 YouTube page. <laughs> maybe, maybe soon. I, I'm building a new website now. Anyway, so I moved to Florida in '70, and uh, I, I did all kinds of work: uh, radio towers, and water tanks, and uh, power line right-of-ways, and that sort of thing. And in 1972, I got a job doing heavy rigging, and uh, we were moving 500,000-pound loads, building a power plant moving the big generators and stuff. And I joined uh, in with the Boilermakers Union in Jacksonville, at 199 in Jacksonville. And it was Boilermakers, Iron Ship Fitters, and Blacksmiths. And there were no blacksmiths in the local. There were none. And so I got a book by Alex <coughs> Beeler on the art of, of blacksmithing, and there was a page about a quarter on forging knives. And I read that, and I... I don't know, it triggered something in me that just changed everything. And so I went out and got me a root forge and an anvil and, and some old cross-cut saw blades, and I would heat those things up and cut them out with a cold chisel on the face of that anvil. Uh, people tell you you can't destroy an anvil. I, I can destroy an anvil. I, just, <laughs> I didn't know any better. I was supposed to cut on this other place anyway. So I turned my anvil into an embossing die. Everybody goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm making a brood to forge. Well, all I had to do was put the steel on that anvil and hit it, and it made it a brood to forge. <laughs> that was some ugly stuff. Anyway, I uh, uh, went along a little further, and, and uh, I was making these big fillet knives out of this L6, this cross-assembly, selling them. For the enormous price of fifteen and twenty dollars U.S., and uh, I was just so proud of myself. And, and the guys that use them loved them because they cut like crazy. And uh, so they told me I was wonderful. So I assumed that I was. <clears throat> anyway, I heard about a guy up on a job that I was working at. I was working like one hundred and fifteen miles from the house. I don't know what that is in kilometers, but it's a lot more lows than it is miles. But uh, the guy's name was Bobby Tyson, and I found him. He was a pipe. He was a pipe fitter, and uh, 
I was going to be a piper, but I had to be a fallerman because they found out my parents were married. Anyway, I, I went up. <laughs> I went up to Bobby Tyson. And I said, I hear you make knives. He said, he's a real humble guy. And he pulls out this beautiful pocket knife. And it 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 uh, clicked and clacked and did all the things it was supposed to do. And it was made out of some kind of magical steel called D2 I'd never heard of. And uh, so he, he made a mistake. He said... Uh, let me see your work. And I said, oh, you don't want to see this. Anyway, so I started backing away from it, and I didn't want him to see that bunch of ugly stuff I had in my pocket. And uh, anyway, he convinced me to show him, and I showed him. He said, you don't have books on making knives. And I said, there are books on making knives? You're kidding me. I thought I was the only knife major in the world. And he said, there are books? And so I said, where do you live? He said, Jacksonville. I said, Mountain Street address. And he made a mistake of giving it to me, and I moved in with us. <laughs> anyway, he uh, he was very kind to me, and he he opened a shop to me. And then one weekend, he moved me ahead on my finish work five years. And then, as our friendship developed, uh, I had a younger sister that was dying of cancer, and uh, she wanted a pocket knife, and I had never made a pocket. So Bobby could make two of those things in a day. He was that good. And uh, I went to him and I said, my sister wants a pocket knife and I need help. Anyway, he helped me make that first knife, that first pocket knife. <coughs> and I presented it to her. And uh, I was happy about that. <coughs> and then I probably made 40 more before I made a one that you could open without having somebody to set a flyer. <laughs> open. So I didn't have a nail nick and had a flyer's grip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah anyway, I, I, a nail nick wasn't a nail nick. It was a nail remover <laughs> that would pull the nail off your finger. Anyway, I finally got it figured out. I went back up there for lesson two, and he says, well, what are you setting the pins with? I said, a four-pound hammer. He said, stop. stop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got it figured out, and then I started forging and doing Damascus work. Uh, I did forge work till probably, well, continue to do it all the time, but I'm thinking <clears throat> my first Damascus was around, 76. That was a good year. And, uh, that was a good year, 76. Uh, yeah. I was born in 76. You, you were. Well, I remember that. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> you remember me, Mark? Yeah. The earth axis tilted. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> anyway, I went over to, I heard about an old cowboy over in West Florida, Al Pendrake. And, uh, I, he forged well, and uh, his dad forged well, and I drove over there, and uh, it was about 80, 80 miles. So I don't know what that is. It clicks, but it's a long way. Anyway, I went over there. 130. And, uh, the, the old man had his back to me. And, and the back in the days, mate, you had to ride a horse. Sorry, Steve, keep going. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, we were in a covered wagon. Anyway, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, the frontier wagons. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, 
That was a time in my life that I was so destitute that I drove a Ford. You can find them abandoned on the side of the road anywhere. It's just a matter of trying to get it going. Anyway, I'm you know, you know what Ford stands for? Hey, you know what Ford stands for? Fix and repair daily. No, fault of research and development. <laughs> My wife is a Ford fanatic. I got to write that down. <laughs> anyway, so I started pattern welding, and it just went for me. It was just fun. Developing a lot of techniques, and uh, I didn't want to do the ordinary patterning. I wanted to do something extraordinary. So I began to study ancient uh, Egyptian glass and uh, barrel making process that they had in Liège, Belgium. And uh, they had a gun barrel museum in there where they were stacking all these rods and making pictures and, and names and dates and all that stuff. These little square rods. And uh, I wanted to see that, but the museum was kind of shut down, and they wouldn't let you take a picture in there. So a friend of mine that was on a traveling thing in Europe, and he bought a Pentax spy camera, and he went in that museum, and he photographed everything in there. I still have the slides. <laughs> and so it, it gave me kind of a stair step you know, into, into the construction. And then I began to work from there to develop uh, a lot of images, a lot of images. So it, uh, it just kind of built on itself. It's fun. I love it. I go out there every day. I'm excited to go to the shop. Yeah, that's day. awesome. So you're yeah, always from shopping. the rumors, mate. You were like one of the pioneers of canister Damascus. Is that is that the case? That's a yeah. That's a fact. Uh, the canister stuff. Uh, there was another group also doing it, fooling with it, and I don't know when they started, but Daryl Meyer and uh, Bill Farini and Jim Wallace, and they were doing serious Damascus pattern research up in Carbondale, Illinois. And uh, what we did with the canisters is <clears throat> there's a system called HIP. It's hot isothermal And that's where you you put a can around your material you want to bond and you put it in a chamber, you pull a vacuum on it, seal it up, put it in the chamber, and you run 20,000, 30,000 PSI of argon in there at high temperature, about 2,300 F or a little <laughs> higher, and it consolidates this up perfectly. Those machines cost a quarter of a million dollars. I couldn't afford one. So I figured that I would make a poor man model of this. And so I began to uh, put things in canisters, and then uh, first I took these Freon gauges like you used to put refrigerant tires with, and I made a tube, and I put it on the can, and I purged that and got all the oxygen out, and that's the key to any of it. And I uh, got the oxygen out, and then I would uh, forge the thing. I would keep a little positive pressure. Well, it didn't take long to find out the minute you started forging it, if you had vacuum on there, it would suck oxygen in there when it cracked and so defeated the purpose. So I left a little positive pressure on it, and I was welding up stuff at temperatures. If I told you how cold it was, you would call me a liar. I'd have to show you. But it, uh, I was able to do some stuff, so I was doing the canister stuff. 
and then uh, what nuclei of that was I discovered powder metal technology and I adapted that into canisters. I was the first one to do that. And uh, Errol may have been doing canisters at the same time as me. I don't know for sure, but I, I assume that he was. And so we were both utilizing these techniques, but the powder, I was the first with the powder metal technology. So, so what were you doing? What, did, was, uh, what were you did. doing that was different? <clears throat> well, yeah. Well, what happened is uh, I got introduced to powder by a guy named Gary Wright. We all remember who introduced us to powder the first. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Yeah, Goran, uh, Goran's thinking about the first time he was introduced to powder, and it didn't end well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I learned how to I learned how to uh, do that from Gary Runyon. He was a head guy for Teledyne, and they made all kinds of stuff out of metal in the industry. And I met him uh, the first time he was up at Bass's first hammer in and uh, that he had at his house. It's now they have this big event every year, but this year. Uh, COVID took that out. But anyway, he was trying to wick borax and nickel powder into a piece of cable. And I, I've been doing canisters for a few years at this time, and I went up to him. I looked at it, and he said, can you help me? And I said, yeah, get a piece of pipe. We'll put that thing in there and cap it off. It'll well. And it did. And so I went up there to his shop at at Teledyne and taught a class on making knives and looked at all the powder. Well, that led to me wanting to do a signature, my actual signature in a piece of steel. Now, block letter signatures have been done for a couple hundred years, but an actual script signature, my actual signature, I still have bars of that stuff in my shop. But I had a friend of mine uh, that had a wire EDM and he cut my name out. And of course, with the big, uh, uh, the laughable part is, is my, is my parents wanted me to be a doctor, so I just learned to write like one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife too. And, uh, yeah, was, Hi, darling, if you're listening. And his big, big, big loops, and in those loops are little pieces <laughs> of, of material that had to fit in the back in there, and so. He cut this thing out, and it was in a twist block. And I looked at it, and and I, I brought it home. And I was trying to stick these little pieces of 10,000 feet down in that damn thing, and it wouldn't go. So I went back to him, and I said, cut this thing in half. I'm going to use it as a forging. I'm going to push it to something. And he said, okay, so he cut it. Well, when I put it in the press, I destroyed the damn thing. I'm all paraphrase Joe. Joe was very colorful with his language, but uh, he's. I took it back over there to him, and I said, uh, I had a problem. And I, I think what he said was, golly gee, I wish that had <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> I think I've used yeah, those words yeah. before. Yeah, but it took about a half hour, a half hour for the steam to stop when I was here. I said, well, I said, can you cut another one? And this takes forever to do this thing. It's a lot of wire time. And he, I think his response was, sure, I'd love to, uh, sort of. Anyway, he did. And he got it, and I went to pick it up, and we're sitting there looking at it, and I'm sliding these bits in and out, and he said, too bad we can't pour that in there. And I the process nuclei right there in my head. I said, we can. 
Anyway, we bought this drum of nickel powder, and I filtered that powder down in that thing and welded it, and it came out perfect. I still have pieces of it. That's awesome. And so that was the, <clears throat> that was the start of the powder. And then I found out uh, later on I was working on a project, and I've been using this burned stainless steel foil. When you get all this sacrificial material, then you've got to get it back off after it welds. And you need some special material to keep your image straight. So you, you've got to be inside the bill of about 70% so you don't just start it with a hammer or a press. And uh, you want to keep the image clean. And so I was using the stainless steel foil because nothing can weld to that if it's done right. And uh, so I made it, I built it up, and, and, it, and it worked perfectly. I grind into the foil, and then the extra material just fall off. I thought, well, that's cool. I ran out of the foil, and I got to thinking, well, what else can I use? I was making a little folder, and I needed to, to line it to get the sacrificial material off of it. And so I used paper. I thought, well, they use it in Mokumei, Mokumei Gani, and I said, but on a wooden seal. You know, I put that paper in there, welded the edge out, and I put a rod, put it in a furnace, and brought it up to low welding heat, very low welding heat, went bump, 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 welded the thing up. And then I started grinding on the edges of it, and I couldn't find a weld seat anywhere. I kept grinding and grinding. I said, damn, they've got to come on. I couldn't find a weld seat. There was nothing. So I stuck it in the acid, and I could see mosaic all the way around the edge of this billet. Uh, then I had to machine it off. And what happened is that paper had turned to carbon and had had actually uh, migrated into the part toward the eutectic level between the outside. It, it made a perfect welding block. And so I went, oh, my God, that's wonderful. Because then I could take my powder canisters and make all my forms out of paper and pour them with different powders and it would weld perfectly and keep the powder segregated. So it just one one technique added to the other. <laughs> so that's that's what I do in my spare time. <laughs> so you're very good at origami then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, it's really origami. I pull that paper money out of my pocket. <laughs> Looks like somebody been using it for a Kleenex. <laughs> the cashier says, oh, what is that? I said, redneck or coming. <laughs> anyway, so long story short, one thing building another. And then I found that in teaching, if you teach people, then you double your life in the business. <laughs> And uh, everybody, everybody you teach goes down a different road. And you don't have, physically, do not have time to follow all paths. But if you've got this stream of students out there, they're feeding back into you. And uh, it just makes well, Wise words, mate. Wise words. Share, yeah. the, share the knowledge. We have to say that when we see the depth of knowledge, especially over in the U.S., and those that are actually teaching sharing that knowledge it's, it makes the guys over here in australia pretty envious of of what you guys have got over there when, when we see you know for example like uh at the moment bill burke and rick dunkley are running a, a damascus line lock course and when we see those guys advertise that and people go oh i'd love to get there but i you know i'd have to fly over people in australia we're just going 
We'll fly over. We'll fly over. <laughs> it costs us a lot and we have to get yeah, there. Yeah. But, yeah, when you, you know, look at the domestic airlines and stuff in the US and the opportunities for people to learn, nothing – like distance isn't a thing over there. And it's funny when you, you see the locals go, oh, it's too far to travel – We'd probably give half an arm and half a leg to be in those positions to, to be taught by people like yourself. Well, Kev, you already did it, right? You went to Bill. I visited Bill like four years ago. Yeah, we already yeah, done it. Well, I, I did an impromptu liner lock class with Rick Dunkley. That was amazing. And like I said, you know, I was just, I was probably in awe too much to really take in the information because of where we were. Uh, he is brilliant. Him and Bill Barker, uh, some of some of the most outstanding bladesmiths out there. It, uh, incredible. I, I really love Bill's work and Rick's work. I've known Rick since the nineties. I went out there in the nineties. Dog and I both went to Montana and uh, helped them form the Montana yeah. Mafia. And uh, yeah, that I coined that term out there because <laughs> they were all kind of independent. They got isolated. Guys, and especially that that uh, snake eyed guy that got the old black eyes. Who's that Shane Taylor? You're, you know, you got to watch the black eyed Patton Steele and thief. my God, he's a sneaky guy. You never know what you know. He's got an underground brains in his yard. You think he's pure? Yeah, you think he's got he pures and driven? No, nah, nah. Anyway, he invited me out to teach in the 90s, and we went out there, and I ripped the lid off uh, of what I was doing and shared it with them, and they went crazy. And, uh, it's unbelievable the, the work they did. It's, uh, uh, Rick is probably one of the top folder makers in the world right oh, now. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's amazing uh, what they did with the knowledge. And I got feedback from that for years, for years and years, feedback from that. And that, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yes. And uh, Josh Smith, I was, he was about 13 years old. I got pictures of him and I working together in Shane's shop in the 90s. We watched that poor child go through puberty. That was a painful <laughs> process. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does incredible work. You know, he's been making knives since he was a baby. And uh, it's wonderful stuff. Yeah. I've, that's, that's, that's it. That, so I was at Rick Dunkley's hammering last year, and they had the re, the reunion of the Montana Mafia. Yeah. The first time they'd all been together for a long time, which was pretty amazing. And I met Josh Smith for the first time. And, yeah, he's, he's just a top bloke. And, you know, the information that he was willing to share. But Shane... Shane uh, I, I actually got to say I have a very soft spot for Shane. Shane and I have shared a couple of moments together. <laughs> Won't go too far into detail. <laughs> but I went. We 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 stopped at Shane's house. It's pretty effective. We stopped at Shane's house and we drank his home brew. And then they were like, "I'll oh, come and see the firing range under the house." And I'm like, "Okay." And we went down there, and I was just like, "Who is this guy?" I'm a little scared. <laughs> As you oh, should yeah. be. <laughs> but like it's a good hearing that that you've had that sort of visiting to those guys at that time because you know I've seen um, or we were at Rick's house he he um, put us up and you know fantastic guy 
But I saw some of the mosaic stuff that he was doing with like the um, the rodeo riding stuff, the cactus, Shane doing all of his other stuff, and it's just like, where does this stuff come from? And obviously filters back to your influence, probably. Yeah, I can't credit for all uh, uh, Don Fogg was out there yeah. well. And uh, what we did is we dropped ideas in the pot. And when you've got creative minds, they will do things with those ideas. Uh, and share techniques. And uh, it's like uh, all the explosion patterns and stuff you see now nowadays, all that stuff was developed out there. That was after we showed them our techniques. They, they went along. I think I'm going to lay this one off on Shane. The first explosion pattern was done. <laughs> it's because Shane lost track of where he was making the billet, and he got the damn thing a quarter turn out of shape and pushed it, and then he had to assemble it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Disaster. He turned it into, into pudding or something. Anyway, it was fine. One time he he had a blade on the table and it was obviously lettered, but it was mosaic. And uh, I looked at it and I said, well, "What the hell is that, Shane?" He said, "Oh man, let me here, let's get over in the corner. I want to share something with you." Anyway, he had made this and he lost count, and it had faces in it. And of course, the faces got so tiny that you couldn't articulate with your eye what they were. You couldn't make them out. And uh, so what he did, he got pissed off. He decided he'd just make a piece of ladder pattern out of it. And so he lettered that real deep and, and then pulled it out. Well, what that did is it it stretched the face and made it big again. <laughs> and, and so it, it was a technique that was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. It's funny. <laughs> That's better be lucky than good. Good anytime. But uh, he, he's an incredible craftsman. <laughs> Did he tell you about the blade? That's a $16,000 blade he left in the acid overnight. Oh. Did, he, did he tell you that story? <laughs> he had this thing worked months on it, and you can still see it. it, it he sold it. It had a little hand coming off the side for a latch and that sort of thing. He spent months on this damn thing, and he put it in Farrakhan, and his wife came out and distracted him. He forgot about it. And they went to town. And when he came back, he had this blade that had been in the track chloride about 10 hours or something <laughs> when he remembered it. <laughs> and he had to resurrect that thing. I shouldn't have told that. But anyway. The funny story I heard like that was recently <laughs> Bill Burke made that tomahawk with the dragon's head <sighs> and the spines coming off the back. Did you remember that one? Did you see that one two years ago? Yeah, yeah, and it had a twenty-four yeah. karat gold inlay, and it was a big piece of twenty-four <laughs> karat gold. And he he lead tempered it, so he, he lead heat treated it, <laughs> and he had the gold on it. And he thought, well, the gold doesn't melt at the same temperature; it should be fine. But gold dissolves in molten lead, so he's put it into the pot, and it's come back out without the gold on it. And he's like, <laughs> he's lead. His lead heat pipe turned into about a three thousand dollar heat system. So he's 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 drained out all the lead and sieved it, hoping to find it, but it's dissolved into the lead. So you've actually got to like chemically separate. Oh, yeah. it. It's just like fuck it. It's the most expensive tempering 
tapering system out there. <laughs> so he's heat treating him. He's heat treating him now. Good, oh, yeah. like a one yeah, yeah, like a true pro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was actually, I was actually there. I, I saw Bill's picture of that tomahawk. I saw the concept. Then I saw the forging of it. And then we left. And then I saw the finished one afterwards. And I was like, holy shit. That was a nice. I held it. Oh, I didn't man. hold it. He wouldn't let me touch it. Yeah. That was at Blade Show West. Yeah. Fucking a couple of years ago. Yeah, unreal stuff. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, nice. Yeah, funny stuff, man. Funny stuff. Fun so, times. It's interesting how a group of knife makers can get together and just form a community like that that uh, that sort of grows and builds. I think we've, we're kind of getting that happening in Australia. We're starting to see more of it here. Yeah. Yeah, we're yep. starting to see more of it here. Starting to see little spin-off yeah. groups, yeah. regional groups. Yeah. You just got to keep every you got to keep yeah, everyone connected though. So you can't have the groups just disappear into different areas. Yeah, and getting political and shit. Yeah. We just yeah, keep the whole thing running. Keep the whole thing running. So every year we have this event called the Australian Blade Symposium. Um, well, you're the president of the association. Yeah, well, that's it. Story. Apparently, I'm the president of the Knife Art Association, as voted by my peers. But we have this, um, you may or may not have seen it yet, Steve. We have this event every year. We call it the Blade Symposium. And what we normally do is we, we invite out a mastersmith, generally from the US, um, and, and we encourage them to teach, you know, some or run through a couple of topics in that and then potentially teach a class afterwards. But that that brings everyone from Australia or from all around Australia, not everyone, but a large group of people from all around the country come into that one area and, you know, there's such a massive community feel from it. Um, you know, and it's something that we're sort of working on and expanding on. So speaking of travelling, when we're over this bloody virus thing, mate, um, you're, you're still in your prime. You'd probably be interested in coming out to Australia at some point, wouldn't you? I've got my bags packed from last year. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you went to South Africa. Surely you'd want to come to Australia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> South Africa. Yeah, my dad actually was, when I was in a senior, my dad was at Andamuka for almost two years down at the Woomera yeah. Missile Range. Yeah, he was down there and he kept calling. What? Was that 76? Uh, no. No, he was down there during the Vietnam War, so it was 63, 64. Oh, that's all right. He wasn't my daddy. They, they <laughs> built that, that uh, they built a Jundavik missile down there. Yep. And that was yeah, the first, first, it was the first UAV, and they flew that thing up over China, North Vietnam, taking real-time photographs. It, it was the first UAV, and uh, it was what's a, what's a UA? Sorry, sorry, what's a UAV? Yeah, one of those unmanned aircraft. Yeah, it was a drone. Okay, drone. Drone. Yeah, drone. 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 Oh, oh, oh right, because they had the they had the V two rockets like in World War Two or whatever, but they weren't controlled, right? They were just fucking, <laughs> fucking fire and shoot. Yeah, they oh. fire that thing off and it do a turn and shoot real photographs back. Uh, yeah, so he was down there. He was telling me about it. He showed me pictures of the kangaroos standing three deep in the shadow of a telephone pole. And, uh, but I wanted, are you guys anywhere near mud crabs? I'll throw my clothes away and fill my suitcase with mud crabs. That's a, uh, my suitcase. mud crabs, man. No worries. Mud my, crabs. my old man, my dad used to go out getting the mud crabs. And he'd bring them home and he'd pop them into the bathtub. And we'd be in there. I was 
really young, we'd be in the bathroom and he'd come in with a broomstick and he'd, he'd go, don't put your fingers anywhere near those. And we're like, you know, young kids would, oh, why, Dad, why? And he'd stick the broom handle in, like, you know, three-quarters of an inch or an inch thick broom handle. Those mud crabs snap and you just yeah. take two steps backwards with your eyes like pizza plates. We'll get you, if, you come down, if you come down, we'll get you some bugs. Morton Bay or Main Bugs. Oh, yeah. You're not hey, lived uh, until you've eaten bugs. It's got to be way better than those damn Mupati worms that, that Kevin uh, uh, Harvey gave me. No, we no. don't do shit. No, none no. of that, mate. No. <laughs> they're like um, they're like little sweet little lobsters. Small, yeah, yeah. mini lobsters. Little mini oh, lobsters. Yeah. Good. They're not like a scampi. Uh, they're, they're more like a fucking something that came out of like a dinosaur movie. Yeah. Pre- they almost look like a prehistoric creature. Yeah. Sea creature, but you uh, need them. A little, they're little, but uh, they, uh, we call them bulldozers up here, but they're, um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've researched everything there is to eat in Australia, and I, I haven't got anything off the list yet. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll help you out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, okay. You guys yep. set date. I'll be there. I'm not afraid to come to Australia or fly or any of that kind of stuff. I'll load my ass up and go. But you got to hurry. I'm 73. Yeah, that's yeah, all right. No, that's yeah, a, you've got, that's plenty, a, of you got plenty of time, mate. So plenty before time. we went on air, you were talking about the dangers of some of the foods that you've eaten through the Laos community. And, and I tell you, we've got something that will top anything that you've eaten from them. We'll take you to a football match and get you a meat pie. Yeah, get meat pies there. Don't you have meat pies? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, but we usually make it out of road fuel. Yeah. Same thing. Same, same thing. thing. Same <laughs> thing. We sell it the football. Yeah. Mate, nothing like yeah. a meat pie. Beautiful. Put it in a bit of pea yeah. and ham soup. Mashed peas. Uh, oh, you got to have it. Yeah, I can do that. That beats jellied cow skin. Yeah. <laughs> jellied cow skin? Oh, that sounds all that right. That sounds actually. African, actually. Where'd you eat that shit? Jellied cow skin. That's leather. I'm, it's I'm jellied sure, leather. I'm sure the beer that Shrek gave him that. The beer uh, that yeah. and, and, and he, I, thought, I thought it was a damn meatloaf, and it was just cow skin, and they cooked till it's like jelly. And it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. Put enough pepper on anything, and it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a bit of flavour. <laughs> yeah, we make sheaths out of leather down here. We don't do that with it. Yeah. Mm. It's a bit you different. Well, when, when you live in a culture where your biggest job of the day is finding something to eat, you'll eat them near anything. And that, yeah. that's what happens. We get spoiled, you know. And these kids today said, where's milk come from? And they said, from the grocery store. No. It comes from a damn cow. No, it doesn't. It comes in bottles. <laughs> they're, they're, they're idiots. They have no idea. If they had to cow titties. Kill, kill, kill the cow, cut it up. Come, come on. They'd come know on. Better. They're not idiots. You can't blame them for their teachers. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll give you that one. Honey, I'm being PC. You want to get a picture? <laughs> We're recording this, don't you worry. 
I love. So, so you guys, you guys uh, build knives all week and then do this once a week, or what do you do? Yeah, yeah, we work all Thursday, then we do this on a Thursday night, and then sometime around mid-afternoon on a Friday, we get out of bed and do it all again. Yeah. Well, we're able to move again. <laughs> not, not blaming yeah. the alcohol. Yeah, it's, you know, well, you got to come back effect. next week to apologize for the week before, so that's a good thing. That is exactly I've right. Done yeah. that for he those did that. that in late. He did that for last time. He <laughs> got that one covered. <laughs> I apologise for not. I apologise for not being on to control him. <laughs> uh, that's that's all right. It makes it interesting. Yeah, no, nah, that's what it's all about. So, your knife making. Uh, I hate saying journey, but your knife making journey. When did you, like through the ABS? When did you get into your journeyman smith for a start? I started off as a master smith. Ah, <laughs> and that was in 1981? Yeah, the papers were signed in 81, and I'm on the books in 83. And that, there was some mix-up and uh, some political, a little bit of political stuff going on. But anyway, that's all in the past, and it is what it is. But I've got yep. the papers signed by Bill Brent. What happened is there was a, a bunch of us working at... at, at at that stage of the game, high level. And then Bill wanted to bring in his original guys that he had, his friends, into the to, to the thing first. But it, they didn't explain that to us, so they just kind of withheld some papers and that sort of thing. Anyway, it all worked out over time. And so it, it is what it is. In any organization, you, you've got these little rough spots and stuff, and then you work it out, or you go form your own. That's the reason you got a different <laughs> church on every corner. <laughs> we're, I think we're aware of that. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, it's just like when I went to France in the 90s, I taught a bunch of those guys over there, and uh, they were all uh, – cloistered way and they didn't share anything. You and I will share more in 20 minutes than they'll share in 20 years. And so I went over there and I broke the door down on that. I was with a guy named Dennis Lemaire and uh, Dennis passed now but uh, he showed me all kinds of stuff. Anyway, we went in and just broke that whole thing up and for about 10 years they were sharing information, having hammer-ins and doing all that stuff. And now they're all back to fighting again. So yeah. it, goes, it goes in cycles. Yeah. You know, people people get jealous. But what people don't understand is I could come to your shop and study with you, and I could be your clone. I could make things exactly as you do, but I can never be you. And I will give you a prime case of it. I, actually, in my talk I gave it in, uh, in uh, South Africa, I talked about it. After Bob Lovelace became famous for his little drop point hunter, you could go into any knife show in the United States and there would be anywhere from 50 to 300 guys making Bob Lovelace drop point hunter. And the, and the, some of the guys were pretty good and they were getting three, you know, two or three hundred dollars for the thing. And the guys that were just really exceptional and some of them were better than Bob on the enforced quality and Craftsmanship stuff, they were getting seven or eight hundred dollars 
for uh, one of those nights. And then you went over to Bob Loveless's table, and he's sitting there being irascible and getting $2,500 a piece because he's Bob Loveless. And, and so that's that's the thing. Is, is everybody, you can only make your own work. If you're guarded and jealous about what somebody else is doing, you better find another trade because anybody be you, even if they copy your design, it can only be a copy of your design. You get wound around the wheel of that, and I did. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking out of turn here. I'm not pure as a driven snow by any uh, stretch of the imagination. I had a guy copy my work and uh, win a huge award with it. And then I was young, and I got incensed about it. We had a little tit for tat. And then I, when I finally saw what he'd done, if I kept my mouth shut, I could have kept all that drama out of it and, uh, and, and not alienated the guy and all that sort of stuff because it didn't matter. It did not matter. The only person that can do my work is me. And that's the only person I'm in competition with. If, you, if you're in competition with the guy down the road, afraid the guy down the road is going to steal the customer's up, you better get your, your act together and get your product better. Well, you better no, one, product. no one in the world can do what I do because I don't even do it. You got to have a story. And uh, one of the th things I use as an example for that, there was a guy in California, he's passed now, his name was Phil Hartsfield. And uh, the guy was a marketing genius. He'd take a flat bar of, of friggin' A2 and he'd grind a chisel grind off of one side with 60 grit scratches. He would heat treat that thing and wrap the handle in paracord and dip it in epoxy. He had a, a Japanese movie star cut a helmet with it. And he had people lined up at shows selling those things for 8,000 U.S. a piece. And they were fighting over them and crying over them, and it was nothing. It wasn't about the object. It was about the story. Yeah, and that's what yeah. most people don't get. you got to have a story. Look at Henning. He could take $1,000 bills on his stuff, and it wouldn't sell, you know. But he's got a story. That's what I do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where I'm going wrong, see, because I don't have a story. I've just got excuses. Well, Sometimes the best story. <laughs> Henning has the best story. He's like the, I'm the Shrek of South Africa. I make knives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that guy. He is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, He's like a younger brother. And the, the other I saying mean, that goes around at knife shows is people don't buy the knife, they buy the maker. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's yeah. very true. If you're he sitting there, he love you, bro. Yeah. If he's sitting, if you're sitting behind your table, most of these guys will sit in a low chair. They're looking up at the guy that's coming to the table, and uh, in between reading their phone or reading a damn book or something, and that, that guy walks up and goes, "Well, hell, he doesn't give a shit whether he sells anything or not." Well, no, you stand up and you look him in the eye. Or if you if you're like me, about two or three hours of standing up, your knees are screaming. You get a high chair, and you sit up, so you're looking the guy in the eye. And the guy says, well, how much is that? And I says, how bad do you want it? He <laughs> said, yeah, well, you, you don't have any prices marked. I said, well, I don't know whether you deserve it or not. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I said, you're not paying me for that. You're paying me for the block of time that I won't get back that I put into making that. And that's where your value is. It's about, that's, that time won't get back. You've spent that time. Time is it's something you don't get It's not even the value back. that you spent making that knife. It's it's the time that you spent learning the skills and techniques as well, right? People undervalue right. that. It's those years of not making anything fucking good, as yeah. well. You know, yeah. we did. None of us started off as masters, well, except for maybe Jackson mm. and a few other people. But yeah. most people don't. <laughs> 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 and, and, yeah. and that's a fact. That's an absolute fact. That's uh. You know, people get so jealous of things that you go into a knife show and there's hundreds of different kinds of knives. And it's because the whole idea, the creation is subjective. What's beautiful to one person, not beautiful to another. But, uh, I, there was an old guy, his name was Weston Senior, he was a World War II vet. And that guy could forge weld anything to anything. And I know what his secret was. He could, he could literally weld galvanized chain link fence to a piece of stainless steel. <laughs> you you never seen such a mess. He showed me a bully knife one time. He said, look at that little bright dot there. I said, okay. He said, that's the end of a 51 Ford push rod. It got a lot of chrome in it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but he had a story to tell, and he was selling those old bully knives. The handles didn't fit. Big epoxy joints. $2,500 a piece, you sell 10 of them in the first of a show. And I'm over there with this high-end mosaic folding knives going, please buy my knives before I kill myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's marketing. It's yeah. telling a story. It's I've always been, a lot, of, a lot I, of the newer makers here, Steve, when we go to, go to a show, they sort of <laughs> ask, they ask, I think they ask the wrong questions. They are, oh, how much money can I make at a knife show? Or, or, you know, this is a completely wrong thing to do. And I've had someone say, oh, what do you, what do you look for to get out of a show? And I say, I look to catch up with the people I haven't seen since the last show and to talk to the people that want to pay to come into a knife show. And they go, but what about the sales? And they go, well, the sales don't really matter. If I cover my costs, you know, like Corin was just saying, if I cover my costs, I'm pretty happy. If I sell enough to pay for the booze that we drink, oh fuck, I'm, you've done well. I'm even happier. <laughs> if, I, if I take sure a few, if I nice. take a few dollars home, if I take a few dollars home on top of that, I'm over the moon. It, I think when you go to a show like you were saying, particularly about that, if you go there with the mindset. You need to make a certain amount of dollars to make it worthwhile going. Don't go. You've got to go to the knife show to be a part of the knife show. You've got to go to the knife show to just be in with the experience of it. And even at, even at Blade Show, where we've gone over there, that's a, like the American knife-making shows, from my experience over the last two years at Blade Show, it's a very different thing. Australian knife shows, are, I think it's easier to engage the people easier to get them interested in looking at your table. In America, it was, for me in particular, I found it, you know, quite a different scene where you had to actually try and engage the people to get them to look at your table because you have, like you were saying, there's so many tables there. There's so much on offer. What 
are you doing different to make that person stop? Corinne, what was right. the time you were saying? Like, how long does it take you to to spend each each table? What was that thing you were saying? Yeah, if you go to Blade Show, there's so many tables and the show's only so long. And so we worked out you've got about 38 seconds per table. If you want to see the whole show, you can only stop at each table for a maximum of 38 seconds. You can spend a bit less on one table to spend a bit more on another one, but that's it. It's There's a fucking lot to see at All Blade right. Show. There's no way you can... No. There's no way. You just can't do it. And, and like, if you have got a table there... Oh, forget it even more. You just walk around, chat to people, and you just yeah. you meet the coolest people. Before you know it, your bag weighs heaps because somebody put a forged skull in it. Somebody, <laughs> someone dropped a forged skull in my bag, and I didn't find it till I got back to the hotel. I'm like, the fuck, my bag's so heavy. I thought, anyway, so I had to carry that home. My suitcase, real nice. I forget who that was. I think it was someone anyway, Trey or someone anyway. Someone did that. It was nice. They were good guys. <laughs> Uh, Anthony no, Kittle, just a minute though. Anthony Kittle put up a thing that said, this guy here, but is not the same comment, that said, there's no knife events in my area. So here's the question to you, Anthony. How many have you held? And if the answer is zero, shut the fuck up. Now, <laughs> keep going. You've been told, Anthony. Fuck up. <laughs> yeah, Big fucking Yeah. Righto, where are we at? Righto. Somebody wanted to know before, do you use liquid paper on the inside of your canisters? Is that a... Hell no. Hell no. Hell no. That's for the portion fire. Uh, that's all. That's, that's absolute nonsense. It, uh, I, I use burned stainless steel foil to get it out. Uh, you, can use, you can use titanium dioxide. Uh and that that forms another oxide that keeps it from biting. But I I generally use burn stainless steel foil. If you put fresh foil in there, it'll weld. And uh, and uh, I had a little problem. I thought I went to South Africa and one of my demos. I put the, put the stainless steel burn foil in there, and half of it welded. And I went. I've gotten so much better since I've come to South Africa. I can even now weld this. You know, that was like <laughs> <laughs> But I was really confused because I'd never had that happen. And what it was was a different alloy of stainless that flowed a little easier. Now, what happens when you get that molecular bond is you're exposing fresh material. And you can do this cold, cold as well. If you're exposing fresh material in the absence of oxygen, it will weld. It wants to hold hands. It has a propensity to exchange electrons and fight. And so the whole key to any of this forge well is keep the oxygen out. You keep the oxygen out, it'll weld. Uh, what then you run into unlike materials, and you have to be careful with that, because some of them have very, very different flow rates. Uh, back in the 70s, when we were doing stainless Damascus, we started welding... Uh, D2 and mild steel together. And it was like welding up plywood and mayonnaise. It would squirt that mild steel out from between it because the D2 was a nice steel and a hot heart. And so you, we had to increase the thickness of the mild steel to compensate for the difference in the flow rates of the material. And so you got to do a lot of stuff. And I, I tell you a bad story on myself. 
Pendrake made something with D2 mild steel, and he put a Vastoware Cercor in it. And it didn't have a way to heat treat the thing, uh, because you need to do that in a vacuum or where it's contained with no air. I have a little furnace with a with a graphite uh, a uh, graphite bath in it, and I would use that graphite to heat it instead of heat treat while I use graphite. So I put these three blades that he had labored on in this graphite, and uh, of course the kiln didn't have a switch on it or a thermocouple. You just plugged it in the wall, and when it got hot enough, you'd stick a K thermocouple in there, and he'd pull that out and take the blades out and harden them. Well, I put them in this little kiln. This is in the laundry room of my house. Back in the old days, I was working in a thing about the size of a closet. I plugged that in, and that, that furnace was sitting on top of my wife's washing and so I, I go in the house and I fall asleep. And I went, I woke up and I said, boy, something smells hot. And so I, 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 then I remembered the kill and I ran out and it's red on the outside. And I went, oh shit. So I flipped the door open and of course the coils went to vapor. Oh, that, that Wolfram was gone. It was uh, all the coils burned up instantly. I'm looking in this lava bed. It's rolling and boiling. This this carbon is boiling in there in this mess. Oh shit! Anyway, so I I, I grabbed a pair of tongs and I reached in there, and these things were hanging down like melted carrots. They were all stuck together. They were welded together, and the blades were literally dripping little liquid pieces of steel off ends of them. And they were just fused. They were totally destroyed. Anyway, so I just put them back in there and I shut the door. And about three days went by and, and uh, Pender calls me and he says, are, are my blades finished? I went, oh yeah, <laughs> they're finished. <laughs> you know, he, never <laughs> he never asked me to heat treat another thing for him. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have held a grudge like that. It would have been me. But anyway. <laughs> you, you, you took a few years out of Alf Henry's life. <laughs> yeah, lots of years. <laughs> yeah, he was, we were great friends. We didn't work together a lot. We did all the original Woot stuff. We were uh, a part of a team called Woots International. It was me and him and Bob Jones. And all the earliest Woots plays were more PJF. And I'm obviously the S. And then uh, he got tied up with a, a bunch of them. Uh, yeah. They, PJS. They were up. PJS. That's Australian for pajamas. Yeah, no, but it, it was Pendray, Job, and Schwarzer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's almost like pajamas, only older. Yeah. <laughs> Ours had button flaps in the bottom, so you didn't have to pull them off. <laughs> no Velcro then. <laughs> Onesies. Oh but anyway, that that was that, that was kind of a funny story. It was funny for me. It wasn't funny for Alf at all. But anyway, but uh, we ran together for years. He had this habit when driving like the Kansas City. It's like halfway across the United States to this damn micro, and he had a van with these extra 100-gallon tanks in it. And uh, so they would, uh, we'd drive, and he'd want you to sit up all day and talk to him. And uh, while he drove during the day, and then it came night, you, it was your turn to drive, and he was asleep in the back. 
And I thought, you know, this is just not right. But we were coming around and let them one time, and they had road construction. And they dug these great pits in the road, and I remember that. So we went around Atlanta, and we went to Kansas City, we came back, and they filled these pits in and covered them with black uh, tar, tarmac. And the, no. You speak and, You're taking a bathroom break. Sorry, I'm just going to. We just got a little bit of. We're, just, we're hot spotting the Wi Fi from my phone. And I realized Uh-oh. my battery's about to run out, so we got to charge Uh-oh. my phone while we're talking. <laughs> it's I, just part I, of the professionalism. I, yeah, you know, under. that's it. I, yeah. I, 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 In the old days, we just would have gone flat. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to this. My wife, my wife doesn't let me talk at all. Anyway, <laughs> did you hear that, love? Uh, take a photo. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. She's talking to me. I go, stop. My phone's dead. Like, what? I love you, honey. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Mine doesn't listen. Anyway, we're, come, we're coming back, and they patched these big holes in the, in the road with black off. And it's raining, and my night vision wasn't all that good. And we're coming around, and Al's asleep in the back of this van. And I, I think I'm driving off in one of them holes, so I put both feet on the brake pedal. I locked it down, and it came from the back of the van, and hit the back of the driver's seat, and they, then I realized it wasn't a hole, so I jumped on the gas, and it threw him back against the back of the van. And uh, he started screaming, and he says, pull over, pull over. And he said, I said, I can't, we'll be killed. He said, I don't care, pull over, I'm driving. <laughs> he, he wasn't going to trust me to drive any further because I <laughs> dodged the damn imaginary hole. Anyway, <laughs> oh, that's nothing. I went sideways <clears throat> onto the wrong side of the road one year going to Adelaide. True. <laughs> Ooh, that was a bit of a mess. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> right. anyway, next story. So, next story. So, Steve. Yeah. When when I went and had a little bit of a. Actually, there was. Let's go back stalk. just to, to stalk. Yeah, I stalked you for a little bit. But let's go back just a, a slight period of time when we were doing the push up challenge. You yeah. remember that? I know you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and out of, the, out of the dark comes this old bloody old codger, Steve Schwartzer, knocks out. I don't know how many, was it 30 or more push-ups? Yeah, 30. Didn't raise raise a sweat. And I'm thinking to myself, there's something about this guy. He's not telling us the whole story. So I I stalked you and I had a look at your website. Now, you, outside of your knife-making prowess, you also hold a lot of accolades in powerlifting. Yeah, I ate oral records. <laughs> we, we have a fellow listening to us at the moment, and I saw one of his comments just before, Blair Walker. Blair, Blair's a bit of a, a powerlifting fella. Mate, I have to say, like I, I go to the gym a fair bit, and I have to say, like when I started reading through your long list of records, I was like, 
Holy shit! <laughs> what what got you in? What got you into powerlifting? Like, where, where was the where was the draw to that side of things? I was 60, 60 over sixty, and uh, my shoulders got to where I couldn't hardly pick up a cup of coffee or or uh, yank a chainsaw. It was painful, and so I started. Uh, uh, to a friend of mine who's really sharp and he explained me the mechanics of the shoulder and he said you need to do these exercises so I went to a little local gym down here and I started doing those exercises and uh, there was a guy there he, he's, he's built like Jamie and he, he was seven. He, he was in his late 60s almost 70 years old name was Sheldon Schultz. We call him Dutch Schultz. He was a local police chief. And that old guy was doing good mornings. You know what that exercise is where you bend over the waist with a weight on your neck? With yeah. 500 pounds. Oof. And he was doing sets with 500 pounds and he's nearly 70 years old. And I said, what the hell's wrong with you, old man? Somebody trying to bulldog you. They'd make a serious mistake. He said, I need a training for him. He was pretty gruff. He was a cop for 50 years. He wasn't totally without humor, but almost there. And I said, so I started training with him. And within seven months, I broke the floor to take direct bench pressing. And then we continued to train uh, for seven years. And I wound up breaking eight world records in a bench. And uh, that's how that started. So I don't do anything a little bit. I've got three Dan grades in martial arts, different systems. I saw that too. It's on the board. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed a few things down on the board that's out that way you can't see. It just says says karate. It says karate. Karate. Um, Yeah. So my, my my wife, and you probably understand why I always say things like, yes, dear, sure, dear. My wife attained her third dan in Taekwondo, and uh, that was a very impressive feat to see that happen. And you can tell why. The way I look at things now, if my wife's angry at me, I figure I have to go and run and hide behind a doorway that's about that thick because I've seen her kick through that thick of boards and I think there's no place I can hide that's safe enough. So It'd be no good in my no, house. Yeah, no good. Uh, we, we, we fight <laughs> modern, modern, constru- <laughs> modern construction, I just keep out of the way. Kill me. She's so, that it, uh, That's a lesson I learned long ago. You never date or marry a woman that can whip your ass. She couldn't when I first started dating her, and then it just evolved that she could. (laughs) I've always raised my boys not to stick their dick in crazy, too. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. That's a smart move. Yeah, my yeah, my wife, my wife, uh, like I said, got a third dad. My son got the equivalent of a junior black belt in martial arts when he was a little bit younger, and there's me. I, that's why I started making knives. Yeah, you look like, like a fucking Viking. It's a you little like known, a fucking Viking, bro. I know. It's a little known fact, Steve, that I'm also a black belt, mate. Well, I have a black belt anyway. It's just about here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a nice one. Yeah, I like, yeah. like macrame. Yeah, <laughs> that's to help him pick you up when you can't walk. 
It's not that strong a belt. <laughs> You'd need to be a powerlifting champion to lift him up when he's drunk. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fair call. Oh, Lord. Fair call. Yeah, what so that's, that's pretty what bloody... What are you saying? Nothing, mate. <laughs> Have a drink. Shut up. <laughs> so that's pretty awesome, mate, because one of the one of the biggest things we see with people is when they... You know, Aging prematurely, you know, like, oh, I'm 60 years old, I can't do that. And it's, I, I, train, at a, I train at a local gym where I'm probably, at, I'm only 47, I'm probably one of the youngest people there. And I see the, I see the older guys training and I love it. I, I just think it's the best thing. You've got to stay active and you've got to, you know, you've got to keep pushing that thing, but... Yeah, I did sort of. I did sort of look at your records and wonder why that you were putting your hand up for the arm wrestling championship, mate. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> well, I, I've had I had the ability to to deceive people with my yeah. strength because they look at me and they don't see nothing. That's that's and why my that, comment that, on that Facebook post was, I'll put my money on you without the age handicap. That <laughs> was so funny. Uh, a guy I know here in town, uh, he's got a son. He, he's, the kid's huge. He's 18 years old, and he's got probably 18, 19-inch arms on him. And he's, of course, he's got some chemical help with that. And you can see it in him. Oh, this is all natural. Yeah, out of syringe in a bottle <laughs> and, 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 and those guys are not typically strong except right when they're peaking on the cycle of whatever they're doing uh, but there are arm wrestling's got a lot of tricks in it and uh, if you know how to lock up and that sort of thing you can <clears throat> stall a pretty good size guy anyway this, this kid wanted to arm wrestle me and this is after I was six, I'm about 63 or 64 years old and and uh, he jumped up on the table, and I said, okay, give me your best shot. And uh, so we locked up, and he's pulling, 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 and I ain't breaking sweat. I'm just <laughs> looking at him. I said, uh, you need to start sometime. And I got in his head. I said, when are you going to start pulling? He was already, he, had his, he was about to bust some blood vessels in his eyes. And I, I just had him locked up. I, I had my shoulder over it. Well, he had to pick me out of the chair to pick to do that. There's no way with the leverage I had. And I said, once I got in his head, I, I could feel him relax a little bit. And I bruised the back of his hand on the table. <laughs> Put it down. And then, then I, I, every time I see him, I'd say, you tell all your friends some 60-year-old guy beat you arm wrestling. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, nah, forgot yeah, about right. that one. <laughs> I had a similar thing at Blade Show a couple of years ago. Out of the blue, I got challenged to arm wrestle this guy that was, that a, was lot, last year. a lot bigger than me, the year before, a lot bigger than me. And I was like, oh, dear. Anyway, I didn't do it the first night. And then the second night, um, these Eric Markman, if he's still on here, those bloody... You got to watch those wily bloody uh, Viking guys. Those guys from over in the bloody Norse lands. They they yeah. talked to this guy and told him that I called him a chicken and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, it happened to be that on this on the Saturday night down in the pit, I saw this giant, 
and he coaxed me into arm wrestling him. And I did exactly what you said. I just locked him up and just played him while he was while he was going red in the face. I was just looking at him, and I did the same technique of just waiting and waiting and waiting. I had one shot at it, and I just felt mm. him relax a little bit and went, "Oh, did you say start?" And then I just then I just went for it, and I. I had that one shot at the title and that was all I needed. And as soon as I started pushing him over, his eyes went a bit wider and then he pulled out. And he's, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh you know, we both yeah. win. We both win. And I was we like, no fuck fucking off, way. <laughs> but I, I tell you what, if I had fucking, if I had about five seconds of effort in the tank. Yeah. And I just, uh, I just hit him at the right moment. Did, like, did, did, did you shit your ass? <laughs> did you hear that little shot? I was pretty close, mate. The turtle popped out and said hello. Oh, my God. <laughs> Left a little Hershey's kiss in the fucking... Yeah. Hershey's kisses, oh, that's yeah. what we call them. <laughs> so, Jamie's oh. pointed it out a, bu- a bunch of times uh, that, oh, yeah. that right about now, we would be, even right now, we would be in the pit. Uh, you yeah. know, not... Well, well, six o'clock in the morning there. Well, yeah, we would be in the pit. We probably breakfast. still would be. We wouldn't be out. Yeah. But anyway, so we're missing Glacier because it's closed. So we'll just have a minute of silence. Yep. That'll we work. won't even have a minute of silence. We've just done it. Steve, there's another thing because we talk about Blade Show a bit because those that haven't been there don't understand the impact that it has on, especially as an Australian visiting. On the knife maker side. And so there's a rule... Apparently, that the listeners made up that every time that I say blade show, they have to drink. So I, I love saying, I love talking, I love talking about blade show because it just means our listeners get drunk and want to listen even more. <laughs> or, or turn a blind eye to the stupidity yeah, that or, we should yeah, turn talk. the volume down. What was your ticket, bro? What? That's where they put. Reason they put all that salty peanuts and stuff on the bar. Oh, the more yeah. you eat, the more you drink. You gotta get it. Oh, we don't need we don't need the peanuts. We don't need no salty peanuts. <laughs> Fuck it. Jesus. They loved that blade show down in the pit on a Saturday night at or Sunday morning at two a.m. They love the Aussies because they're trying to sell all the cans of beer cheap, and they go, oh, two dollars a can of beer, and we're like. Call that five of them. We're just throwing money at them. Yeah, make your brain, make your brain, bitches. <laughs> we don't have to get up tomorrow. We just no, nah, that's it. <laughs> well, we do. We do anyway. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny though with that sort of over there. But we that. can blame jet lag. Oh, geez, yeah, jeez, jet, jet lag. Oh, shocking. Jet lag. Oh, terrible. Oh, shocking. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, that that I think that 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 one show. The impact of that one show and getting to meet so many variations and different people of, like from all around the world is just amazing. Just amazing. Corey Cunningham no, says, lucky it, not it's to... great stuff. Yeah, but uh, back to the, coming to Australia, <laughs> you, you put my name on the list and if it comes up, I'll be there. Mate, oh, yeah. well, that's what, that's what we want to hear. Enthusiasm, yeah. enthusiasm, it counts for a lot. <laughs> We're gonna do it. Well, I've, got, I've, got, I've got one or two little tricks I can share and probably make it worthwhile. Don't tell there. anyone until you get here. Yeah, unless we're I'm asking gonna, you. Yeah, what I'm gonna do is come down there and steal all of your secret techniques and come home with them. You can make barrel knives. Yeah. Teach you how to make a barrel knife. You need a couple of extra yeah, weeks. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, you might, you, if you're lucky, <laughs> if you're lucky when you come here, you get to make a hammer at Corrin's house. Yeah, well, that was unlucky, uh, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? If, if you come here, I'll be cooking for you. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. That'd be great. Oh. I'll make a mosaic hammer. Jamie, Jamie will oh. make some sausage and put it in your mouth, too. He'll put his sausage in your mouth. Do you know Sausage Man? You know Jamie. <laughs> Jamie, yeah, I got all yeah. his. Uh, yeah, the clever man. I so, got his tools. I got some of his stuff in my shop. So it, it, he's great. I love Jamie. So Jamie, he like um, an, he's an Irish troll. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, come out from under the mountain. <laughs> so we call him Sausage Man because at every event in Australia, he comes around with a fry pan. I think it's in his profile pic, maybe, maybe not. He comes around with a fry pan and feeds us all. You know at that point in the show where you're really hungry and you just you don't have time to stop to eat? Jamie comes past with a fry pan full of Kransky. I don't know if you call it smoked verst or something. Right, like brat. Whatever you call it. We don't know. We call it Kransky. Cheesy brat first. Yeah. Yeah. Cheesy brat And you just grab a handful of that shit and stuff it down your throat and keep going. He's like um he's like an angel amongst dwarves. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy his company. I've visited with him a, a bit, and I really like the guy. Quite. Plus, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with a guy that can cook, you know? No, nah, well, yeah. you know. we got to mention his video. we got to mention the video you guys have done. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the Wrecking Ball video, is that the one you're talking about? It's on my uh, TikTok. Uh, yeah, remember a few episodes I was saying how cool that will be have Jamie swinging like the Miley Cyrus in a video and yeah. next thing I see is these fucking guys tag me and like oh Jamie's on the wrecking ball yeah. you gotta be careful what you wish come on show it I'm doing my best dude just, yeah. just chill man yeah. Stop being so aggressive. I'm, I'm just glad. I'm just glad I wasn't up there to encourage Jamie to drink more and get his clothes off before he jumped on that uh, anvil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have added some graphic moments. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh yeah. <laughs> you gotta love it. <laughs> we t- we well, had one take at it because Jamie was pretty uncomfortable. He's not, he's not. Um, how would you put it? As young, fit, and lithe as he may have once yes, been. Yes. And uh, sitting on a hundred and fifty kilogram—that's about three hundred pound anvil. Uh, he just—I don't think he was very comfortable. All I heard him saying was, "Get me off! Get me off! Get me off!" But I pushed him anyway. <laughs> And, uh, and we got the job done. It was rather pathetic. Probably could have gone harder. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great sport of sacrificing friends. You, know, you have to pick your battle. If he had had a fan of soldiers, you wouldn't have thrown him away. He was, he was hanging on for grim death. <laughs> that was that's a funny weird. moment. Yeah. Man, I made a bowling ball gun here a few years ago. It'll shoot a 16-pound ball over a mile. And we took it down to my friend's house. And if you look on a map, you'll see Lake George in North Florida. If you look up in the right-hand corner, you can Google it. 
you can go to Lake George in North Florida, and upper right-hand corner, just as you come around the curve of the lake at the top. Let me see if I can do it like that. Anyway, you'll see a little thing on the satellite map. looks like a little corral coming out in the lake, and that's to keep the weeds out of us. Well, we had that gun set up there shooting towards the island. I put a quarter pound of gunpowder down that thing and seated that ball. <laughs> and we looked a little bit foggy, but not bad. We're looking out across the lake, and I lit that thing, and that ball disappeared out of sight. It's gone. And boom! And it's, it's, it's off. But you can hear it because the holes in it's whistling. <laughs> Way out across the lake. And, uh, and then it comes down and it hit. And uh, it was two and a half seconds from the time you could visually see it strike till the sound report, impact report came back. So it was over a mile. And it threw a column of water high as a telephone pole. And then we heard the bass boat crank up. He wasn't staying for shot two. <laughs> that guy was cooking down the lake. Anyway, we had a great, great wouldn't we'll do that when you come here. Is that yeah, is that see. another one of your influences on Josh Smith? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he loves shooting those cannonballs. <laughs> oh, that's great. Who oh, wouldn't? It, Tell me, he's oh, good. You would, right? Yeah. yeah. It's funny. He's got, uh, from his property, it's when you hunt animals, it's with a bow only. But then yeah. he's quite happy to throw a bowling ball in a cannon and shoot it across the thing. Over the mountain. Up oh, at, yeah. Um, on Shane Taylor's ranch, it was funny because a close shot out there is about 600 yards. I guess that's 600 meters. And uh, but you can the beauty of it is is you can see the bullet hit because of the dust, yeah. kick up dust. So you can walk it in like an artillery round. Well, Shane's brother Dallas and I are friends, and me and Shane are real close, and so we pass stories on each other like in the family everybody's sworn to secrecy but it, you know it ain't gonna laugh well Shane was talking about this shot he made on a coyote at over 600 yards and uh, so he was telling me about it he was all excited about it with iron signs at 600 meters he shot this coyote and I said yeah I said but the damn thing was wounded he said it got quiet he said, you've been talking to, talking to Dallas, hadn't you? <laughs> well, yeah, he, he shot the leg off the thing and could barely move. Like, you're not quite the hero you're making yourself out to be. Anyway, that started. Then his brother, who is a predator hunter, and he, he, he hunts coyotes. Because when you have livestock, you have to keep them down. It's just like, there's bad dingoes in every way. Anyway. So he'd gone out on a snow machine. He's got one of them skidoos where they go going to snow. And he's a big guy, huge guy. He's like, he built like Jamie, only about a head taller maybe. And uh, anyway, so he gets on his thing and it rips the crotch out of his snowsuit. <laughs> on his, it, his bits and pieces got frostbit because it was like, like 15 below zero out there. <clears throat> Anyway, Shane was sworn to secrecy, and uh, so he immediately called me to tell me about, <laughs> his, about his brother. And, and so I waited a week, and I called his brother Dallas. I said, Dallas, I said, I said, it's all over the news. 
down here in Florida. It's unbelievable. He said, what's on the news? They were talking about some guy that was out on a snow machine and got his bits frozen. And the phone went quiet. He said, Shane ratted me out, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm doing everything. I'm just trying to keep peace in the family. That's all. Yeah. Ask, you need to ask Shane how well he did it quickly a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I think he got one. One shot. <laughs> all right. One on target. That was it. So all you, had to do, all you had to do to beat Shane was get two on target for the whole event. <laughs> I love it. I love well, it. I heard a lot of stories. I heard a lot of stories about Shane. Not many of them were very good, particularly when it came to sharing a room with him like, no. at, a, at, a, at, a, at an event. And towards the end of last year, we went up for Rick Dunkley's Big Sky Knife show, the inaugural one, and um, they said to me, "Oh, Shane offered Kev, you you can share a room with me." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So then I started hearing all of these scary stories about people who'd shared a room with Shane, like Bill Burke and um, or Rick and Eric Fritz, telling me all these stories about Shane. And I, I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you you've you just." It's full, you're full of it. They're all lies. Anyway, this, this is a funny story. We're, we're in the uh, we're in the room together, Shane and I, and he's just taking his his Glock or whatever out, and he goes, "Oh, I'll just let you know. I'm just putting my the handgun up here on the on the television, Kevin." I'm like, "Okay, I've I've seen enough guns already. No worries." And we share a whiskey, so we're having this whiskey. And Shane, Shane looks at me and goes, "Oh fuck, was this? I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you fifty dollars, and I want you to go downstairs and buy yourself something real pretty." <laughs> and I'm halfway, I'm halfway, I'm halfway sipping my whiskey. And all those stories about Shane start coming into my head. And he was dead serious. He was dead serious. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> track down yeah. a drink. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, I'll tell you. You got to watch that video I got. I'll tell you, you though. I'll tell you, though. It's amazing. What you can buy down in the gift store for fifty dollars at late at night. Look, Steve, I'm sorry. Steve, I'm sorry, it's been a good night, but it's probably time to call it quits now. Henning's here. <laughs> <laughs> your balls, your balls. Uh, did you get lost, Henning? Oh, uh, no, I've got a student here. I'm busy doing a course. Oh, you look busy doing a course. Yeah, fuck yeah. yeah, I am. I just came and sat down here and thought, okay, that's oh, enough. Yeah. yeah. I have a beer. Did you say, just don't get uh, your steel too hot? I'll be with you in a minute. Yeah. One of my yeah. students finished the knife, Henny. One of my <laughs> students finished the knife. Yeah, you bastard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first nice. one. First one ever. That's Steve, a Steve. Knife. I, I never thought that thing really exists. Steve, I spent... It's a unicorn, bro. 
It's a unicorn. Yeah, it's like a unicorn nose. It's impossible to make them. Oh, no. Goran's got a he's got a, a knife supply shop because he needs so much knife supplies because he screws up so much material making one barrel knife. He couldn't make knives otherwise if he didn't have a shop full of steel. So he has to have a knife supply shop. How many days did we spend together? Four or five. Four or five. Steve, I spent five days with Corin at his workshop to make a barrel knife, and we didn't finish. <laughs> Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matt, Jackson, Matt, Rubble, same thing. And it took, it took Jamie, in the end, it took Jamie about uh, seven days. Yeah. Seven days to make to one do, with me. To do a barrel knife. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it must have been with the shop lubricants. That's, that's generally the concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a fair bit. We had a barbecue, we got meat, we got alcohol. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Uh, the, the schedule might have been from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And by 11 a.m., we were sober enough to go back and do some stuff. And then we finished <laughs> at about. 3 p.m. to have drinks. <laughs> I, I've got a bit of a reputation for it. I'm not proud. <laughs> anyway, keep going. As long as we're sharing it. As long as we're sharing the knowledge. Yeah. I've got a problem. I'm going to own up to it. Yeah. When I stuck my foot to the floor using a lathe, that was when I realized I probably should stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Look at Matt shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's true story though. That's yeah. the scary thing. It's a true no, it's story. A sad story, bro. That's a fucking sad story. Yeah. No, so, so Henning, Henning, yeah. you say you've got a student. Is it one of your family again? No, it's a good mate of mine. It's actually my cousin. Oh. <laughs> your cousin? Yeah. Is that the same one that was on a few weeks ago? <laughs> no, no. Is a good student? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's good. Right. yeah, so he's like, uh, you're paying him how much to come? <laughs> 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 he can't afford yeah. to be this popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jamie says it was it was eight days to make eight it. days, bitches. <laughs> eight days. <bitches. laughs> There's the hairy bastard. I don't know. Uh, I've got more in than the rest of the world, I think. Well, and that's only on his rear end. Have you seen yourself on a fucking mirror? Have you seen yourself on a mirror? Hey, Me? On a mirror. No, I don't stand on a fucking mirror. Henning. You have. Fuck you, Henning. You can beauty itself up and get shrek. This podcast is going to shit. There's a trend in our ratings and the look at the viewers dropping. Oh We've my gone God. from 700 viewers to 36 as soon as Henning the showed his face. They run in, they're like, fuck. And the folder, <laughs> Henning, the folder. Have you finished your folder? Yeah, it's done. Yeah, he did. You're yeah, that took any, you a while to make. You're not doing any gold inlay or anything that on it. That didn't happen overnight. No. Oh. Yeah, but it's not a barrel knife. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do a 48-hour barrel knife challenge, bitch. Ooh. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay, I'll do it because that'll mean you'll finish one. For fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> no, you didn't say which 48 hours of which year. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just stagger them in little bits. Three hours this yeah, like year, I'll... three hours next year. <laughs> Steve, like Steve, I'm, I'm, known, I'm known for making one knife a year. Last year I had a week <laughs> off before for New Year's, and I made another one, so I got two knives out last year. So I'm under the pump this year to get two out again. <clears throat> At least two. Yeah. Uh, Goran, just tell me, um, the barrel knife you had at Blade Show last year, who did you borrow that from? Oh, I borrowed it from... Um, <laughs> yeah, obviously. That was... Uh, that was. I borrowed that off me mum. That's me mum's knife, that one. Mum? Yeah, me mum. <laughs> Gave it to me mum. So she's also finished one. And you still haven't done one. No, I gave it to her. Yeah, well, she yeah, she probably oh, could. It's fair. Yeah. Yeah, you can make make fun of me all you like, but someone says God makes your blades. Blame him if what? Takes a while. Oh fuck yeah, right eh? That's a bit wrong. Anyway. Oh, well done, Matt. Well done. Yeah, making oh, friends there, Matt. Making friends that. there. So yeah, Matt reckons. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, what's our next questions for Steve? Come on, Mert, throw one out there. Steve, just before we get on the podcast, you were talking about the forges. So I think a lot of the guys who are getting the knife making, they're trying to make their forges, and who else can give better advice than you? Who built so many forges and knows intricacies? Hell, I just got a lesson from Henning at... Uh, I built all kinds of forges. I built you don't have to probably. mention any. Just, just pretend like he's not here. Pretend Henning's not there. <laughs> the problem is he told me. He told me. Oh, and he gave me an absolute promise he was going to wear his so new hair piece. He was going to wear that new hair piece he bought. And, uh, <laughs> and, he, and he didn't wear it, as you can plainly see. But that okay, thing looked like a, it looked like a skinned muskrat. And I, I didn't appreciate what I was about. But no, I loved it. I, I made all kinds of forges. I, I made uh, I made some round ones one time. I cast over a basketball, and uh, it was a tin to water design, and it uh, had a water-cooled burner on it. That thing was like the sun. It would go white hot in under a couple of minutes. You could weld anything you put in the door. But the problem is the thermal shock would take it out. And all the time it would crack and finally break up like the, look like the Death Star after the explosion. <laughs> but uh, then uh, the Don Fox designs that I used for years work, I've made them both horizontal and vertical. And then uh, after I saw what he was doing, I totally modified what I was doing with it. And I've just finished two big points there. One of them is for a friend of Neil Kamamura, and the other one I made for me, and I love things. After, after you fire them one time and get all the uh, chemically bound water out of them, they go to heat within minutes, and uh, you can be welding just in, in probably 10 minutes left in the damn thing. So it, it, it works. That new refractory was hell expensive, but it was worth it. So that's what I'm doing at... Uh, Anyway, you can build them out of nothing. Kaowul Saint Knight, I built them a bunch of them like that, where you line it with Kaowul, and it can be a horizontal or a vertical. You cut doorways in uh, the uh, 
thing and run a, uh, a Fortera burner is absolutely necessary in any of them. I'm running ribbon burners in this last few. I really like them. Uh, it, uh, it heats and it doesn't run quite much fuel, but it's efficient. But if you're just trying to be efficient, that's kind of a waste of time because if you're being too frugal, it can cost you money. So you want to you want to get the gas in there and get it hot and get the work done. If you know if you're having to take three times as long to heat a piece of material because you're being frugal, you're not being frugal. You're wasting your time and and money to to do that. So I want the forges to get up to speed quick, and I want them easy to maintain, and that's a big deal. You got to have uh, this with this. Uh, this castle light that I, the idea I got from Henning, I, uh, it's going to make my forges last about 10 times longer. I won't have to rebuild them as much, so that, that's a good thing. But, uh, now that design that he has, I modified the way the doors move on it. My doors are backwards from Henning. It's because I'm on the north side of the equator. I think that's what caused it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I have a question before you go into Elmanite and all that. So, what's the advantage advantage of forced uh, air feed versus regular regular burners or venturi burners? What's the advantage and disadvantage? Well, the advantage to that is you can you can maintain heat at any elevation, and you you get a better burn. Uh, venturis don't save you money. I'm, I'm walking around trying to find a fuck board. Uh, you still hear me? Anyway, uh, yeah. yeah, with a Ventura, you have to, it works on the Bernoulli effect. The speed of that gas is pulling the air in. And so you're having to run run air, uh, run the, the turbine or LP or whatever you use, and they're under high pressure. And a lot of it to get the air draw to make the thing thing burn. And so they work pretty good, but there there's tends to be cleaning problems on them, and they don't heat uh, big billets very well. And I'm I'm into stuff that's of a size. That you can, hold on just a second here. Let me get plugged in. Get, get, oh, what the hell? You think would have worked all this out beforehand? Anyway, that's <laughs> all. <laughs> it says low battery, you're dying. Well, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your patient? What's that? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that should be working. Should be working now. I'm easily distracted. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like Venturi burners. Yeah, you can use them, and yeah, they work okay. But you're requiring on the velocity of the gas to get the air in it, and being able to tune that thing. I use needle valves on my gas flow. You can't throw it with a ball valve. You can occasionally guess and get it right, but needle valves is the key to it. And if you got that forced air, you can always choke the air down. And tune the thing, and uh, so you got to always run a little bit of a rich flame in there, so you're not oxidizing your material, and that works best. That did that answer your question? 
I think so. He, he just always looks confused, so it's very tough to say unless he says yes. I'm not confused anymore. So Mert, just say yes, I understand, sir. Otherwise, he looks so confused all the time. <laughs> Real? That's, that's yes for you, Andy. That's for you, That's for you. <laughs> that's for you. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, we got it. <laughs> Who are you people and why am I here? <laughs> we ask the same question every week. Don't worry. <laughs> so is your so latest? Right now, did... in, uh... Shut up, Henny. Yeah, I'm asking a question. Yeah, that's my thoughts on that stuff. Is your latest one? Uh, is it a ribbon burner? Yeah, yeah. I, I went with a ribbon burner. And uh, now that I'm looking at it, I understand why they use them in everything from ovens to all kinds of stuff because you get a little more even distribution of heat. I'm trained in places so I plug this in or see. You know, fix it back down. There we go. Yeah, anyway, we don't want um, to. Yeah, fire, that, that, yeah, I don't. I hate it when things say you're dying. And I'm not sure what they mean. This gets a bit scary, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could yeah. have you know those you know those, Steve, you could have saved yourself about four minutes of grief then just by yelling out, Hey honey, where's my charger? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that I do that a lot. I said, get your big fat self up there and find my charging cord. What is wrong with you? <laughs> now, see, I got by with that because she's not in here. She yeah. was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Remember what I told you last week? Don't make me start that ass whooping. Don't make me start. <laughs> see, or you promised, Father, that she cannot hear you. I got her, actually she's outside strapped on the back of the tractor hold the mower down that's a <laughs> counterweight <laughs> she's massive yeah, oh, yes. oh. Uh, she got up to 106 pounds the other day I had to run her by the truck and get the weight off of her <laughs> <laughs> she's she got to be building <laughs> Oh, you're going to love it when you get up here hitting that. Uh, I built her a new leather shop. And uh, it's in the, in the middle middle barn. I've sealed the thing up with uh, the guys putting in drywall. And we've got several heat and air in there. It's got four coverings, and it's going to be nice. And I'm not allowed to even leave a fingerprint in the damn thing. But it's <laughs> worth it. <laughs> Steve, for those who don't know, your wife is also... Also, knife maker as well, right? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. specializes in skagels, but yeah, she, she's a journeyman smith, and uh, she's pretty damn talented. Uh, when I got her, uh, she couldn't cook, and so she could make knives. Though, so I thought, well, that's a pretty good trade. Anyway, <laughs> she's she's got ten thousand cookbooks, and they she occasionally produces things that are just absolutely great. 
uh, sometimes make things are so good that we just never have to have them again. I mean, you can improve upon it. Matter of fact, uh, we've got we got sculpture in the yard uh, that she made cooking. It's uh, called gravy. But some of it's been out there for three or four years and won't melt in the rain. And, and <laughs> I tried to feed it to the wild, <laughs> and, and they couldn't do it. You hear that, love? I'm bragging on your cooking again. Oh, see, you're a legend, <laughs> You're a legend. You're a legend. I was. I told her she had a second block, but I, I would get up in time for this this podcast. So that was when she comes in and she touches me on the feet <laughs> and make sure my legs are fully extended. She touches me on the toes and says, "Honey, honey, what?" He says, uh, six thirty. Yeah, it is. Uh, do you want coffee? Said, yeah, but in a cup. Don't pour it on me like you did yesterday. <laughs> 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 no doubt that she is a good woman. Yeah. She is a good woman. No, no. <laughs> I tell you what. Uh, Sometimes I tell you what. We have more fun together. We play all the time, and, uh, uh, and we had and I had him building cabinets for floor to ceiling oak cabinets, beautiful thing. And anyway, she he was out there. He and his wife don't play at all. I mean, they they barely speak. And we were out there in it, uh, the that room out there. I'm a lit or something. Anyway, it's downhill a little bit. <laughs> we're in there working, and there's smoke coming from under the door of the house out there. He said, something's on fire in the house. I said, oh, no. He said, no, it's smoke. I said, no, that's more of boiling water. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't, he didn't see any humor in it at all. We were, we were talking. We were talking a few. Surprisingly enough, when we had Henning on a few weeks ago, Henning made the mistake of putting his wife on the camera for us, and and then we realised how unfortunate arranged marriages can be for the wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. What he did is he went and hanged out at a casino and he found the chick with yeah. the worst gambling problem. He made her a bet that he knew he'd win and told her if she loses, she's had, she had to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that happened. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think Mert. Bought his wife at a slave market in, uh, <laughs> where are you from again, Mert? Istanbul or something, I can't remember. And, I'm uh, from Ankara, motherfucker. My wife is American. <laughs> okay. I, I, I made her at a gunpoint. I was like, I bought the cat on you, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, he moved. <laughs> That's why he moved to an open carry state. <laughs> yeah. I bought the cat on you, motherfucker. <laughs> I have to go to the 
My wife's just very hard of hearing, and I, I tricked her into fucking agreeing to marry me. Right, <laughs> 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 when you asked her and when she had to say yes at the, at the altar, <laughs> both times. <laughs> no, it was more like a yes, what? Yes. Oh, yes. What? Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so funny when Laura and I decided to get together. She came down here, you know, and she met all my friends. Some of them are very interesting characters, some military guys and stuff. And, uh, and a lot of them are cops. Uh, they all look at her and they go, are you sure you know what you're going to Every one of them. And then she did it anyway. And, and they said, well, how did you, they asked me, how did you manage to capture Laura? I said, I went to Michigan. The women up there are all desperate and needy. And I, <laughs> so she doesn't allow me to tell that story much. <laughs> Lucky she's outstrapped to that tractor. Yeah. <laughs> Milking the cow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't want to be rude, but I'm going to get back to that student of mine. Oh, uh, yeah, poor bastard. He still's probably got I, bright I, sparks flying off. He's like, oh, <laughs> heading, heading, heading said I'll be back in a second. I'm just, I'm just going for a piss. Bugs coming up. Heading's going to go out with a stick. Fuck you, Heading. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> Heading's going to go out to the workshop with a stick and just go, I told you not to do that. Just fucking whack, whack, whack. <laughs> I tell him it's okay. Oh, it's that, was that your student running past the back of you then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, there he goes. There he goes again. There's the student over there. Oh, oh. Lying. See the fellas? Did he just run and grab the fire extinguisher? <laughs> <laughs> I'd get back to your class, mate, pretty quickly. <laughs> okay, James. Yeah. Well. See yeah. you, bye. Love you all. Bye. Yeah, Thank, right. Thanks all for right. your Thank rare you, visit to our show, Henning. <laughs> it's like so every fucking week. Oh, I got yeah. 5%. God, I'm glad that's over with. Yeah, oh, so are we. Out. So are we. Fuck. Well, Steve, we have to say, mate, we'll probably let you get on with your day. Uh, thank you very much for All being right. a part of the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, as Henning would say, my bloody ribs are hurting from all the laughter. That was a bloody top top night, mate. Thank you. Any time, guys, and you're always welcome up here. So come on. Yeah, for we'll sure. Make stuff. As, yeah, well, listen. I'd love to have you in Australia. As soon as, as soon as yeah, these, we'll as soon as these travel travel bans lift and everything else, uh, you now that you've said that, you probably actually catch a few of us over there. I'm sure. Oh, uh, absolutely. And I got I got a place to put you up. And uh, the old lady has plenty of wine and liquor, so you're you're set. Oof. And, uh, I've got cigars in a humidor that were rolled in 1966. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch from you a Just you text me an address, man. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go buy a barrel and 
filled it up with something to drink, and when I hit the bottom, I'll have the knife made. <laughs> that's, a, that's a barrel knife. <laughs> All right, thanks for the invite. Enjoyed it, guys, and uh, the door's always open. Thank you Danny, very much. I'll see you. Thanks, Steve. We'll, we'll hopefully. All right, you guys take care. Yeah, we'll hopefully get you out here sooner rather than later. Hey, I'd love to. Yeah. I, I heard, heard for, for, thanks, Steve. You're hilarious. Thank you, sir. All right. See you guys. See you later. Ciao. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> that was funny. He's a hilarious guy. See you guys. Bye, everyone. Ciao. Suck it, suck it, suck it, suck it. One more time, get low, get low. To the window, to the wall. Sweat drops off their balls. All these bitches come. <laughs> keep going. Well, guys, it's good. Nah, keep going. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm out of here, guys. Love you. Love you long time. Bye night. Bye, motherfuckers. <laughs>